0: Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Dr. David A. Bishop. He is an author, a researcher and a consultant uh, in the field of agility and recently written meta-agility, which I have read and enjoyed. Uh, David A. Bishop, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. Okay, so for our listeners who don't know you, before we get into to the meat of your book, uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure.
1: I've been in the uh, technology business for about 25 years. I, uh, well, to go back uh, to the very beginning, when I was around 13 years old, I started uh, programming computers. I started playing around with a Commodore vic 20, decided I wanted to be a computer engineer, and uh, went to engineering school, and uh, that's what I became. And I spent 25 years in the technology business uh, working in telecommunications uh, utilities uh, for, and, and uh, companies of all different sorts of shapes and sizes and uh, I, I about uh, 10 or 12 years ago I decided I wanted to change course a little bit and become uh, more of a researcher. I began to see a lot of problems in the industry that I felt like I wanted to solve but I felt like a n- newer a more enhanced uh, skill set was needed to do that so went back to school and got my PhD and started focusing more on technology research and how to solve some of these uh, interesting problems that I was seeing in my career.
0: And when you say interesting problems, you know, what were the, the top, top couple of problems that, that must have motivated you quite significantly as you uh, go back to school at uh, you know advanced stage or a later stage?
1: Sure, absolutely. Yeah, As an engineer, I was continually frustrated by the fact that many of the problems I was being asked to solve were the result of bad management decisions. <laughs> you know, as an engineer, you're taught that, uh, oh, this is a chance to be creative. You're gonna be able to use your creative juices and you're gonna be able to build cool new stuff and cool new products and all this other stuff, which is true, but I felt like as, as my career progressed, I was spending more and more of my time doing fix or repair or problem resolution and less time on the creative side of things. And that just uh, seemed to be just not quite as fun as I thought it was going to be. And I began to realize that a lot of the decisions, a lot of the problems I was trying to fix were the result of bad management decisions, if not most of them in some way. Either they were bad management decisions or bad project management design, uh, bad requirements design, or just a bad idea altogether. And uh, uh, I started to feel like, well, you know, I really want to solve these kinds of problems because I think this is where the real opportunity is. And I think that, uh, well, I've sort of developed a passion for trying to solve these problems. And I felt like uh, that's where my calling was, so to speak. Uh, and as I got into it, as I began to delve more into doing research, more into doing uh, IT research and business research and, and trying to apply that to real case studies, uh, I really enjoyed it. And I was actually making a lot of progress doing that, and I was actually seeing the fruits of my labor more and more, uh, so to speak, and it just became more enjoyable for me. I was I was more excited about developing a longstanding body of work uh, that, that, uh, uh, that would uh, make a bigger impact on the world and the industry that I was in, uh, as opposed to just learning the latest technology uh, that I would work on for maybe a couple of years and move on to something else and throw that knowledge away and then move on to the next project, to the next project. I wanted, to, wanted something a little more longstanding uh,
0: that would have a greater impact. Right. And so, so you actually apply your creativity to, to management problems as opposed to engineering ones. That's true, yes, very much so. And you said, you said it required a new skill set or a new mindset. Is there is this something you found you had to shift in terms of from the engineering mindset to, to this researcher mindset in the field of management?
1: I think the engineering mindset was very helpful with the research, but I, I needed a, a newer, a better skill set. You know, most of the decisions we make in business are based on analysis, maybe some fact finding, maybe best practices that organizations and, and leaders learn over a period of time. And those, that's, that's good for most business decisions, but in uh, and, and some cases you need a stronger medicine. And, 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 in the, and that's, and that's when it's time to call a doctor, so to speak, as I say. uh, You know, when, it, when, it, especially when you start talking about something like agile transformation, which I noticed early on was having had a very high failure rate. Some people have told me, some agile consultants tell me that they think it's as high as ninety percent. I realized that the standard way of doing business or making business decisions and solving business problems through maybe some short-term analysis and maybe a little bit of uh, business case development and a little bit of uh, uh, Google research and perhaps, uh, based on best practices or whatnot, it just wasn't good enough. And so I realized that, uh, business research, uh, getting a PhD in business and learning these research skills, uh, gave me the tools to provide that higher level or stronger medicine, so to speak, to solve these problems that the typical approaches just weren't able to do.
0: Right. And I guess we'll get into what some of that medicine looks like in the course of this this conversation. Right. And so what, and and you've just mentioned the high failure rate of agile transformations. I mean, I guess there are lots of areas to look at in the field of engineering and IT. Why did you pick agility or agile? Why did you start there?
1: Well, because it was probably the biggest problem I noticed uh, when I began to decide to make this change. Uh, As I decided to, uh, it was, was, I would say it was probably the major problem I saw. It was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Uh, over many years, I had seen some bad decisions or, or poor implementations of certain projects or certain technology, but when it came to this agile transformation that I was working with with this particular company, they tried two or three or four times and, and failed, uh, or they achieved lackluster results. They, they brought in high-pay consultants and still didn't make any progress, and I thought, wow, this is a really big problem here. And Then I found out that so many other companies were having the same struggles. I felt like, wow, this is a real opportunity here to try and solve this problem in a different way, because even though there were so many consultants and agilists out there trying to solve this kind of issue, I didn't see a whole lot of uh, uh, of these uh, consultants using business research uh, and, and, and to try and solve the problem. And so, uh, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, just like with uh, COVID-19, for example, you don't want to just you can you can go out and uh, swallow some disinfectant if you want to, but uh, it's probably it's probably best to uh, go with uh, medical research. So <laughs> most most uh, valid knowledge in the Western world is 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 uh, accomplished through research and a scientific method of analysis and and developing these ideas and then applying that to industry. So it's not entirely just academic. Many people have the perception that oh well, that's just academic, you know that doesn't that's not going to help me in the real business world. Well it's supposed to i mean even medical research and other types of research are academic that's how they start but because there's a there's a methodology and there's a a standard that you have to go by to make sure that what you've determined is valid but it can be applied to industry in many ways
0: yeah And, uh, and that was interesting reading your book actually is that almost every paragraph there's a a reference to a scientific paper it's a an you know, extraordinarily well-researched uh, a book. And that's
1: that's important because that's an, basically that's an attempt to validate what I'm saying. I'm not trying to, because otherwise it's nothing but an opinion. And everybody's got an opinion. You know what they say about opinions. So, uh, and opinions can be fine. Uh, but uh, in, in an industry, and especially in a situation like idol transformation, in, in an industry like technology or IT, which is highly contextual, you, you've got to have – uh, you've got to be able to back up what you say. And it surprises me that so many people don't do that. When you look on LinkedIn and you look at some of the agile forums where people discuss some of these topics, they'll come up with uh, suppositions or statements that they just pull out of the air based on their own experience or their own beliefs without really backing it up with any kind of research. And so there's so much churn and, and uncertainty in it. You've got to have, you got to stay grounded somehow. And that's what, that's what I do with uh, the work that I present. It's it's just it's, it's it's should give the reader a, a lot of assurance that hey this is valid, this has been researched, it's been peer reviewed, and you can believe it uh believe what i'm saying
0: <laughs> right because i- w-
1: I wouldn't believe what I'm saying if I didn't have that kind of validation
0: yeah, yeah, and I certainly resonate with uh you know you, you, we described on a prequel you know how agile's a red sea right, right? you know it's um lots of comp- Lots of consultants and lots of firms competing for the agile dollar, uh, all with an opinion and a, and a perspective. And I, I'm sure I've been guilty of the same, you know, over the years. So it's, uh, yeah, it's potentially a quite a differentiating contribution to have, um, such a well researched book in the mix here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've
1: been, there's been a good bit of, there's been a good bit of, uh, a body of research on agile, but, uh, Solving this specific kind of problem has not been there. You know, how agile are you? How do you know how agile you are? Uh, how do, I, how, how do I, uh, if I, if I, if I want to develop embedded systems, how do I do that in an agile way? What is the best way? How do companies leverage agility to become number one in their market, which is the real imp- purpose of agility? These questions have not really been directly answered by the research or in the practitioner community. And so that's, that's the contribution that what I've
0: done. yeah yeah okay um so i'm sure most of the people listening to this will be familiar with uh agility but i do know that there, you know there may be listeners or people who've got this far in the conversation and who are still um you know may understand agile the english word means but don't really understand it in the way that it's used within the it community um and in the first part of your book you talk about what agile is um in terms of its original conception, how it's being applied today and the issues with it. So maybe we could start with what Agile Big A is and and then work out from from there.
1: Agile is the ability uh, to respond to change. Uh, It's the ability to uh, adopt innovative technologies very quickly and produce products that still have a high level of quality and a high level of value to the client. That's essentially what Agile is, and it's a derivation of Lean manufacturing, and uh, uh, Lean manufacturing, and of course, uh, uh, flexibility concepts that come out of uh, uh, you know a lot of the Toyota production system that was developed in 1979. There was a paper published on that, and prior to that, you had uh, Deming, Deming and his 14 points, and uh, his total quality management. These are Lean manufacturing concepts that. Uh, agility or agile as we know today is derived from agile was essentially an application of this lean manufacturing ideas
0: to the software industry as a result of the manifesto published in 2001 right and and the early part of your book you take that manifesto which you know it's is very famous now for a, a large part of the IT community and you've looked at how how the context has shifted since since that has that was written talk us through that a little bit
1: Sure. Well, I think most people are familiar with the four tenets of the Agile Manifesto, which is broken down into 12 principles. But, you know, the, the, the manifesto was written in 2001. And, of course, it seems like yesterday to me, but it's it's actually been a pretty long time ago now, almost 20 years. And a lot has changed. Even in the technology industry, a lot has changed. If you look back at 2001 and how, things, how the technology industry was at that time, uh, you know, uh, tools were different. The way we developed software and technology was quite different, uh, and, and uh, you know, back in the day, at that time, most of the change, most of the interesting uh, products were uh, developed based on internet technology. You know, e-commerce, uh, the internet is where it was at, uh, and uh, it, that was it was all about software. Whereas today, you know, the internet is always going to be important, and software is always going to be important, but most of the cool innovation if I can call it that, is happening with devices. So it's not just about software anymore. It's more about devices. And devices are are, are composed of what we call embedded systems, which means they have hardware, firmware, and software components developed on, on different tracks, often by different teams, sometimes by different companies, but has to be released as one cohesive product. So that's hard to do in an Agile way. So that's just one example of how uh, Agile has well, not Agile, but how the technology business has changed. The products have become more complex. Uh, the tools that we use to support ourselves have changed. And innovation is moving at an even more, much more rapid pace. So, for example, if I were to go through the four tenets, uh, I don't, we don't have time to go through the 12 principles, but if I was to focus on the four tenets of the Agile Manifesto, for example, one of the tenets was individuals and interactions over processes and tools. Meaning that, okay, we're more worried about, we're we're more focused on people. We want a people-focused process. uh, And and we really don't want to call it a process. And we don't want to focus so much on tools. That was the original idea. Uh, But uh, globalization has led to more complex teams and interactions. Uh, Agile was originally designed for co-located teams, small co-located teams working together. that's not really the context that we work in today. We typically work with with people all over the world all the time. And so you have to have tools to be able to do that properly, like the tool we're using right now to have this conversation. And today's tools have matured. They've gotten much better. They actually facilitate these interactions, and they drive these processes. When you look at uh, one of the most important ideas behind Agile is collaboration. Well, there's a whole suite of collaboration tools that we have today, uh, like Slack and, and other tools that just like that which didn't exist 20 years ago. And I don't think people even realized that those would even be needed or, you know, we had email and we had some messaging and, and stuff like that, but you didn't have Slack. You didn't have these collaboration tools that were designed to facilitate this interaction between large distributed teams. And so that is, that is uh, that's how that has changed. It, it's really Instead of individuals and interactions over processes and tools, it's more individuals and interactions plus processes and tools. And so that's how the application of that tenant has changed over the past 19 years. And then if you were to look at the next one and say, well, we used to say working software over comprehensive documentation, meaning that we're all, we really want to focus on developing working software and getting that out the door because back in the day, Developers would have to create this long-form documentation along with uh, the code that they created, which was time-consuming and took away from what they were trying to – took away from getting product out the door. And this was considered to be very laborious, and developers hated doing it. And I remember having to develop some of that documentation myself. But that has changed. Today, it's more about working product with documentation. Uh, Product meaning, hey, it's not just about software anymore. It's more about devices, like I said earlier. But also, documentation is and always is going to be very important for any technology product. You've got to have something to tell you how to use the darn thing, right? But it's taken a different form. Instead of sitting down and writing these long form documents, you have artifacts such as ethics and user stories and decision outcomes documented with your collaboration tools that becomes your documentation. So you you still have documentation, it's just taken a different form. And then if we were look at if we were to look at the third tenet of the manifesto where it says customer collaboration over contract negotiation, meaning that, okay, you know, we're, we want to be totally customer focused and we don't want to uh, try and force a customer to adhere to this very strict contract, right? That was, that was the, water, the waterfall method of, okay, this is exactly what we're going to deliver in, in 12 or 18 months and we're never going to change from that unless you pay a lot of money and then that's going to change everything else. But today, customer collaboration includes contracts and negotiation, because collaboration, which is a tenet of agile, and negotiation are essentially one and the same uh, as it's been applied in our case studies. And collaboration happens faster through a variety of stakeholders, both internal and external, meaning that uh, your, your customer is really a partner. Uh, and uh, they're not just someone you collaborate with uh, in many cases, the customer-to-client relationship. Uh, or the vendor-to-client relationship is somewhat blurred. They, they they become a partner in helping you develop this new innovative product. And so, like the last, uh, the fourth tenet of the manifesto. If we were to talk about that, uh, this is the big one, right? Responding to change over following a plan, meaning that we're not going to use these plan-based methods like waterfall anymore. We want to be able to respond to change. That's the whole point of being agile. But in reality, today that has morphed into more about responding to change while following a vision because you may not have to have a strict specific 18 month roadmap or plan, but you still have to have a vision for where you want to go. And yes, you're going to respond to change, but you want to make sure that that change you're responding to uh, adheres to your vision. You have a vision for where you want to go. And you have all these changes coming up, but you want to accept the changes that are going to take your company and your organization where you want to go and maybe ignore the changes that aren't going to uh, help you achieve your vision. So some of the case studies we worked with made strategic decisions about which customers they were going to listen to. Some customers, you know, were very strict in some of our case studies and said, well, you know, we want you to deliver this by this and have this, you know, this level of quality and such. And our best case studies would say, we're not gonna work with you. And they would ignore those clients and they would uh, stick with clients that were going to uh, collaborate with them very closely to achieve this innovative product and take them where they wanted to go according to their vision. And that's very important because many companies, especially young companies, are focused on you know, whatever customer we can get. That's the customer we're gonna work with. We wanna get as many customers as possible. But if you have the wrong customer and you're trying to achieve a high level of agility, uh, that can actually cause you to be less
0: agile. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so Okay. And and for those who are listening to that and thinking, well, yes, but hang on, those who wrote the digital manifesto weren't saying not and right. They were saying, you know, responding to change over following to plan, but they 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 still had a. This concept of and, right? And we will still have plans, and we, you know. So, so are you potentially creating a straw man there of what those in the manifesto had originally intended?
1: Well, the the plan, so to speak, again, a plan typically implies a very specific set of features, typically over a longer period of time. It's what we call a roadmap, and that could be twelve to eighteen months out. And and in most agile organizations, it's hard to really develop a. Uh, a solid uh, plan or roadmap more than six months out. So you may still have a plan, you may still have a roadmap, but it's not going to be two years. It's going to be more about six months. But uh, the the vision is the more important, much more important than just the plan. The plan is your short term plan of what you're going to achieve over the next six months. Maybe what you're going to achieve in the next release. And you've done your sprint planning and you have your iterations and you figured out, okay, these are all the features that I think we're gonna be able to get done in the next eight, nine, 10, 15 sprints that we hopefully will plan to release in, in, in three months uh, once we get these sprints completed. And this is what our release is going to look like. So you may have a plan from that perspective. And of course, sprint planning itself, the word planning is in there, right? That's part of the process. So you're still following a plan. But it's uh, what what the, what the change is here is that instead of having this long-term roadmap with all this specific detail, you you uh, uh, and or not having one at all, uh, the idea is that you have to have a, a vision. Because a one danger of Agile is that uh, people tend to become, organizations can, can become too myopic. They focus on the next iteration, the next iteration, the next iteration, and, and they lose sight of the fact of well, where are we going? What are we trying to accomplish here? And so you have to have that vision to make sure that, okay, we're slowly but surely getting to where we want to go. And it's a vision for our products and our company that we're trying to achieve. Uh, because the you can make a 12 month or 18 month plan if you want to, but it's probably going to change quite a bit.
0: Right. Okay. Um, so that makes sense. So so I'm just trying to sort of get in my mind, summarize the argument here, but is it something like, you know, the whilst a lot of, in essence what the manifesto was saying is is still valid there were some sort of important omissions in terms of e- emphasis like the fact that you need to have a vision like the fact that processes and tools to some extent drive the interactions right so it's uh, uh it's not as simplistic as that is putting that uh assuming those to be entirely dominant when the reality is that our processes uh and and our tools do drive a lot of the communication yeah. If you look at that
1: statement once more, once more, it said responding to change over following a plan. Well, it doesn't tell me, well, am I supposed to be able to respond to all change? What the, what the revision here that I, is that I'm saying is, yeah, you're responding to change, but it's governed by a vision. You don't respond yeah. to all change in the market. If you do, that could cause right. you to become less agile. You have to have this vision that you're trying to adhere to. And our best, highest performing case studies did that. They had this vision They made strategic decisions about what kind of change they were going to respond to, not everything. Uh, And that's very important. And that's something that was kind of left out. And many people believe that you're supposed to be able to respond to all change and every change in that market. Well, no, our best case studies made some very strategic decisions in what kind of change they were going to respond to who they were going to listen to. And they developed a vision that was going to take them where they wanted to go. And they evaluated every change opportunity against that vision.
0: Right, and that's the difference. Okay. And is there anything else that you think they missed out?
1: Uh, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, uh, beyond what I've already said, you know, the it, it, they're, they're essentially refinements. The idea that uh, uh, instead of customer collaboration over contract negotiation, it's customer collaboration includes contract and negotiation because over time, contract negotiation and collaboration have become one and the same. It's very much one process that includes a variety of stakeholders throughout the company, as opposed to, you know, in the old days, just your lawyers and executives getting together with the client and writing out this contract. And then everyone else just, you know, proceeds from there. Uh, The actual development of the product idea and the refinement of it uh, happens at many levels uh, within the company, not just with the executives who are signing on the dotted line. Right.
0: Uh, So it's actually uh, part of part of collaboration. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, I see. Then you go on to to talk about some of the issues you started to touch on there with with agile teams. You know, that this risk that they can become myopic. You know, what what are some of the things that you discovered that can be the issue with agile teams?
1: Well, agile has uh, you know the the good things. I'll start with the good things first, which most of us are aware of, but I want to make sure the audience is aware of that. Agile has been proven in the research and in the practitioner community to uh, improve quality and reduce cycle time, improve job satisfaction, productivity, customer satisfaction, all those things. But there's always been a lot of negative stereotypes with relating relation to Agile. Many of them are not really true. Uh, you know, For example, that uh, uh, many people will say, well, Agile is an undisciplined process. No, uh, anyone who's tried to conduct an Agile transformation knows it takes a heck of a lot of discipline to make it happen. It takes a heck of a lot of discipline to get your developers in a room for 15 minutes every day and have that stand up. So it's a very disciplined process. But what are some of the problems with Agile? Well, Agile has had challenges with uh, large complex products uh, and large complex development environments. Uh, those are some of the, some of the biggest issues uh it, it, there's also been issues with uh, uh, large distributed teams because it was originally developed with co-located teams. So managing large distributed teams in our new global environment that we work in has been a challenge for agile. Uh, and, and many companies have issues with technical debt, uh, meaning that they don't change the way they develop requirements. And I can talk about that, too. But that's been a, a problem that I often see with many agile transformations is uh, loads and loads of technical debt that accumulate over time uh, and uh, uh, and of course that we talked about and for vision. those who are
0: less less technical that's um, where over time the, the sort of basic design and structures of your tech should become less and less well adapted to the problem you're trying to solve
1: that's right uh, and a lot of times it's the result of uh, bad requirements management because uh, you have oftentimes what happens is during an agile transformation roles and responsibilities change and a business analyst in a waterfall environment, their job may change to what's called a product owner in the agile world, but they don't change the way they develop requirements. And so they, you know, if you think about uh, uh, developing requirements in a waterfall environment, what a business analyst typically does in that situation is they try to dream up all the things that they believe that the client is going to want. And one of the things I hear from BAs often is, oh, I'm just afraid I'm going to miss something. Well, in an agile environment, you're not supposed to be afraid that you're going to miss something because you can always add it in to the next iteration. But what happens because of that waterfall mindset they have, they brainstorm about new requirements that they think the customer is going to want because they're afraid they're going to miss something. They're afraid something's going to be left out because in the waterfall world, that would that would be a big problem if the customer didn't get something they expected if it wasn't captured in the scope. But the problem with that approach uh, in Agile is you're not supposed to, what happens is is they, in many of our case studies, they would create more and more requirements. Well, let's add this and let's add that instead of working directly with the customer and using a top-down approach to develop the requirements based on what they knew the customer needed. And so this results in too many requirements based mostly on what the BA thinks is needed. And that makes it difficult to prioritize the requirements uh, it makes it very difficult to decompose them, makes it very difficult to figure out, okay, what's more, what's the most important thing I need to get done in this next sprint? And those requirements keep at getting added to the backlog, and your backlog gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and that's, the, that's your technical debt. Uh, and out of control technical debt is one of the biggest reasons I've seen for
0: agile transformation failures. Okay. Um, okay, yeah. And so this is a lack of ability to apply the di- di- disciplines that are required of this agile process. Yeah, there's not a,
1: when, when, uh, when agile transformation happens, many can, and I say consultants, because oftentimes this is something most companies don't do alone. They usually bring in some consulting help to make it happen. Many consultants focus strictly on the development and testing teams and they focus on, well, let's, you know, make sure everyone's doing all the scrum rituals and the spread, to set up our sprints and our, our velocity and capacity metrics and and the mechanics of the scrum process which is very important but they don't spend a lot of time working with the requirements and that's many of the problems with agile transformation happen upstream of the development teams and the testing teams and that's where your requirements are being developed and the actual product genesis is being created and there's just many consultants don't have the engineering expertise to uh, try and figure out what these BAs are doing wrong or they don't see what the BAs are doing wrong. And uh that's very important because everything flows downstream as we know. <laughs> and uh if you don't, if you don't fix that, you can uh, do make all the changes you want with the development and testing processes, but they're not going to make a lot of headway unless you change what's being delivered to you upstream. Right. And that's typically requirements.
0: Yeah and and so just for my understanding here so but 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 as i say what you've just described is potentially an excess inventory of requirements on the shelf and i can see how that's a problem for the process in general but how does that directly contribute to technical debt because my understanding was technical debt's more about the the design of of the technology as opposed to how many requirements i have in my backlog
1: well it can be both you know your your technical debt uh, includes, uh, requirements. And these requirements can be business requirements. They can be more technical requirements. Okay. You may have, uh, technical requirements that come from the development teams that say, hey, we need to move to this new architecture. We need to move to this new platform, uh, you know, or, or whatnot. And yeah, those are, those are requirements as well. Those have, those go into the same backlog, uh, and have to be prioritized in the same way. And so, yes, that is, that is what you say. Uh, but, in addition to that, you have the uh uh business changes or the business requirements coming in from the b a s as well and uh and so, yes, it's true that uh when we when we focus on one iteration after another and we 're focusing on getting that working software out there, many development teams don't have the time to go back and oh, I need to fix this, I need to fix that. I need to make this architectural change, or we really need to go back and fix this at later later date. And those become requirements in the backlog and that is technical debt. And many times they're so busy that they don't have time to go back and fix those things or, you know, by the time they do, it builds and builds. But again, that's also the result of what the BA is doing because the BA, many times the BA is linked to the business and that sets the tone for what's going to get done first. It makes it more difficult to prioritize because they all have to be done by the same teams typically. The, the, whether it's a, a an architectural change that, de- that the developers have suggested or whether it's a business requirement the same teams is, is doing the changes and so if the BA is creating tons of business requirements based on what they believe is needed as opposed to what the customer really needs and they're not decomposing it in the right way to make it easily digestible then it's going to become very difficult to prioritize and you're going to have these architectural changes and you're going to have these business requirements and oftentimes you know, you may have a product owner or a product manager that says, well, this has really got to get done now. Well, the development team says, well, I think this really needs to get done, too. And it, that 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 back and forth gets really hard to uh, resolve. And it becomes very difficult to prioritize. Uh, and that can result in a lot of churn. And oftentimes, you know, depending on the situation, one side or the other may win fairly consistently, which way may, may mean that uh, either business requirements get ignored or the technical uh, requirements get ignored for a longer period of time. Neither of which is good.
0: Right, that's, Yeah. That's, uh, that's a good point, yeah. Um, okay, uh, so there's this problem of this tendency for technical debt to build up. Um, what are the other big issues with Agile as you see it? Well, I mentioned
1: earlier about uh, difficulty with large complex products uh, and large development environments. Uh, Large development environments, meaning typically, uh, as I mentioned earlier, globalized teams, large teams uh, distributed all over the world in different time zones. Uh, But uh, probably the biggest problem I saw was with large, complex products. And the most complex products today are embedded systems. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, it's more about, if you look at all the innovative technology being created today, it's really more about devices as opposed to just a software application or a website. Uh, Your smart meters, your smart grid, your smart cars, your smart devices, your cell phone, everything is uh, a smart device. And these smart devices have a lot of moving parts. Uh, You have hardware, firmware, and software developed by different teams, sometimes even by different companies that at some point have to be tested and released as one cohesive product. That's very hard to do in an agile way. And that's the nut that uh, I, my first case study was trying to crack 10 years ago that I was working with. Uh, they were in the smart metering industry and they were trying to solve this problem. And it was uh, very difficult to do because many consultants were coming in and saying, well, everybody needs to be purely agile. Everybody needs to be doing standups every day. Everybody needs to be on two week sprints and our team is developing hardware thinking well, that doesn't make any sense to me why would i that's that's stupid it just doesn't doesn't fit with uh we we don't understand why we need to do this and some of the firmware teams had some of the same ideas, but the consultants weren't familiar with this kind of context they weren't familiar with dealing with this kind of situation, and they didn't know what to do. they really didn't know how what to tell these people uh and so you know, we had software teams that were becoming more agile, but uh, the rest of the organization wasn't following along. And how do you manage that? And how do you bring these other teams forward? And how do you make the whole organization agile? Uh, was a big challenge. And it didn't go very well for quite a while.
0: <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And as you say, uh, that is extremely common now because kind of as as, as software eats everything. If you, so that's that's true on one level, right? But it's also true that devices and hardware is getting smarter and smarter and needs that software. So you do these twin forces, right?
1: Sure. And it's becoming more integrated into our lives and in our society. If you look at, uh, you know, 20 years ago, I worked for a major airline at the time during uh, 2001, during 9-11, actually. But I was uh, I worked as an architect for the website. And, oh, you know, well, you know, it's just a website. You know, we got to, people can call the 800 number if they have a problem. And, you know, we're more focused on operations right now and and our planes and all that stuff. The website was just sort of a sideline. But uh, today, technology, back in the day, it was mostly if there was a technology failure, it was an inconvenience or there might be some money lost. uh, But it wasn't, uh, people wouldn't get killed, okay? But today, that's not true. When you think about the Boeing 737 MAX and the software problem that happened with that plane and and the tragedy that happened after that, and then you look at how uh, with Equifax and Capital One and some of our big financial institutions and how technological failures are impacting them, this puts our financial systems and our economy at risk. And so the stakes are much higher today than they were 20 years ago with relation to technology. And so a higher level of quality and a higher level of agility is more critical today than ever because, uh, technology is so integrated into our lives. I mean, with these phone devices and then, you know, our televisions and our cars becoming self-aware. I mean, it's, uh, (laughs) um, it's, it's much different than it was 20 years ago. The stakes are so much higher and it's agile is one of the primary ways of maintaining that level of quality and, and innovation. That's so critical to, uh, you know, back in the day, it would have been more critical to saving money. It does the same thing today, but today I think it could uh, save lives and uh, uh, help preserve our financial security.
0: Mm. All right. Okay. So, so that you yeah, know, so you make the point very powerfully that you know we need we need ways to manage this. this I guess converge development of both devices. And software simultaneously much right. more complex than the scenarios where Agile was originally developed, as you say, co-located team right. developing purely software on a fairly stable hardware base, right? Right. A- and they were generally working, you know, it was just one one team, one company. Uh, and now we've got multi- potentially multiple teams, if not multiple companies, all on diff- slightly different platforms, all trying to coalesce uh, to produce one product at a time or one cohesive product. Right. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: And and as, so as my research efforts began in that case study, we started making some incremental changes and doing what we call action research to try and make certain changes and observe the results of those changes. To make a long story short, uh, our case studies managed to, well, many case studies that I worked with didn't do too well, but there were a few case studies who managed to acquire what I call a super agile adaptation that enabled them to become number one in their market. And so Metagility captures the essence of what that Agile adaptation is and what those case studies were doing right that other companies were doing wrong. And that's very, very exciting because, you know, that's what Agile is really all about. It's when people talk about Agile today, they talk about, oh, well, it's, 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 it's a methodology to help your teams work better together. And, you know, everyone's gonna be happy with, with flowers and their hair and, and it's more of a, and that, that's important. I mean, yes, it can do those things. It can make your teams work better together and it improves quality and does all those things. But the the, the main gist of agility is competition, becoming number one in your market. Remember, agile is a derivation of lean uh, of manufacturing techniques. You think about the Toyota production system in that paper that was published by those two Japanese researchers in 1979. That's what took Toyota from making tin can cars to becoming probably one of the premier automakers in the world. And so that's what Agile is really all about. Uh, and so, well, what were some of the characteristics of the successful Agile adaptation that I'm talking about? Well, probably the, one of the biggest characteristics was a hybrid Agile implementation. And that's very important because when people think about hybrid agility, it has a lot of negative connotations. You know, they think about, oh, well, that's Agile or, or Fall, or, you know, that's kind of a failed state where someone tried to adopt Agile and it didn't work out and they ended up. Basically adopting a hybrid of, of both waterfall and agile.
0: Yeah, I've it's yeah, it's a compromise, right? You're settling. Yeah,
1: that's right. You're settling. It's a compromise and it has a lot of bad connotations, especially with agile purists. But the, the, the truth is, is that our, 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 our best case studies took an agile, a hybrid agile approach, but it had to be purposeful uh, and, and it, uh, it was uh, based on a specific design. Uh, it wasn't just something that occurred by accident. It was based on a specific design that uh, was proven by the results. Uh, it helped these companies become number one in their market. And so the key to hybrid agility, first of all, hybrid agility is not bad. Many say that it's probably the preeminent uh, implementation style used by most successful companies. So it's well, not that was bad. This,
0: sta- this staggering statistic in the book, right? Only 5% of companies report a strict adherence to pure agile. That's right, yeah. Only five percent. Yeah,
1: yeah, and most of those companies are probably just developing software products, you know, uh, maybe websites, maybe just desktop software, or what have you. Uh, but they're probably not developing embedded systems. Yeah, very much so. And and, and so this this hybrid agile process, it, it has certain character. In the book, I talk about all the different characteristics of a hybrid of, of a good hybrid agile implementation. Uh, first of all, I talk about well, how how do you, how you figure out if you should adopt a hybrid agile implementation, because like you said, there are 5% out there that don't, some companies should take a pure agile approach. Some should just stick with waterfall. Some should go with a hybrid agile implementation. But in the book, I talk about how to make that decision. And then I talk about how to, uh, well, if you take a hybrid agile angle, well, what is the right mix of waterfall and agile, uh, attributes and i go i outline those in, in specific detail
0: yeah and I mean, to give us broad brush right so you, so okay so it's it's a hybrid approach this is this sort of super adaptation and super agile a- adaptation is is to encourage us to take this hybrid approach what what are some of the commonalities if you point to them that, that you found? well
1: sure Well, when you talk about an embedded systems organization the context context we're discussing here you have these typically uh Three basic tracks you have software, firmware, and hardware, and the way it works is the different teams adopt agile in different ways. so you may have your software team that is more of a pure agile adaptation they 've got two week sprints, they have daily stand ups they, they they're they're doing the retrospectives they're doing the the pure agile implementation, and this is very important because Many companies who develop embedded systems, they use their software teams as the early strike force to solve problems because they know the other teams can't move quite as fast. It's also more cost effective. For example, the, the Boeing 737 problem I mentioned earlier, their, their, their solution was a software solution, right? Uh, and uh, so they're going to try and find software solutions before they look into hardware or firmware solutions because it can be uh, developed quicker at much lower cost. So software teams are typically more of a pure agile uh, adaptation, and they're used as an early strike force for the organization. Then you have the firmware teams. The firmware teams are developing software that is closely tied to the hardware. Uh, at the same time, the software teams need – use typically both software and hardware to test against at some point and develop against. And so the firmware teams function as uh, – uh, they're de- even though they're developing code, they don't move as fast as the top-level software teams. In other words, they, they typically will have 30-day sprints. They won't have stand-ups every single day, maybe once a week. Uh, and so that's a different adaptation to how they're doing things. Uh, and then you have uh the hardware teams who move, they may have more of a waterfall type of uh approach. They may still have you know an 18-month or 12-month development cycle. But they acquire certain capabilities that allows them to keep up with the other teams. So uh, our research shows that they will try one of the methods that worked very well was to uh, develop rapid prototypes, rapid prototype development uh, that they could throw a prototype together to give to the firmware and software teams that they could use to develop and test against because there's so many interdependencies between these teams and managing that is very challenging. And also uh, we do, they developed uh, a process for uh, Creating low, uh, cheap—I uh, guess I would say—low-budget uh, projects. So, for example, uh, if uh, if we did have a client who needed a uh, a hardware solution and they needed it right away, uh, and it couldn't be solved with a software solution or a firmware solution, we would create a, a low low-cost hardware project, maybe less than fifty thousand dollars, that would allow the hardware team to develop a quick fix in a matter of weeks uh, to solve that problem uh, instead of waiting for the next 12 or 18-month development cycle. So that's how these three tracks of development, if you will, adapted Agile differently. Uh, And that allowed this organization to move very quickly with uh, their embedded system solution. And, of course, there's a lot of interdependencies and interplay between these three tracks. And how do you manage that? And in the book, I talk about you know, interconnections and interactions, which we hear a lot about agile. That's another thing. When, when, when I, we went through the four tenets, we, heard, we saw the word uh, interact, people in interactions over processes and tools, right? Well, interactions, what does that mean? How do I know what interactions I'm supposed to have? Am I supposed to just chat with you every day? Is it really just about the stand-ups? But in the book, I go through detail to talk about, to classify these interactions and to different groups and to define exactly what these interactions are and how to manage them. Uh, and that's that's very important too. Um, so th- those are some of the examples of what this hybrid agile process looked like. Yeah. So, and I, some of the attributes.
0: Yeah. And I thought it was interesting you talked about the stage, stage gating, which, of course, uh, I remember as a software developer and, and doing agile. That was... Uh, it, it, this sort of, we lived in fear of the stage rate, right? All the documentation you'd <laughs> have to get ready for this stage gate. And it just felt overly burdensome and like it was from some, some sort of dinosaur age. And, right. And, and yeah, you know, I think you make a really compelling case for in this type of situation where you've got teams working at different speeds, she bringing them all together around some sort of formal gate, uh, to, to be in sync makes, makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, the stage gating was was very helpful. It it's not and 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 back in the day it was, well, with the waterfall approach, stage gating was this big wall, right? Oh, you've got to have everything together by this stage gate, or oh, you're not going to pass, and oh, the world's going to end if we don't pass that stage gate. But in, in a hybrid agile implementation, the stage, stage gating is more of a synchronization point. It, it's a way to keep these development tracks in sync. It's a way to Check with the hardware teams, the firmware teams, and the software teams, and to monitor them to say, okay, are we still on track? Is there are we missing anything? Are there any interdependencies that uh, are are going to cause one team to fall behind? So it serves as a checkpoint, sort of a check and balance against the agile iterative agile development process, to make sure that we're we're going to deliver on time and we're going to uh, be able to deliver this complex embedded systems product on time, not just the software because you know business is business business isn't going to change and there's always going to be your, your customer almost is always going to want a date you know they're going to want okay Well, when am I going to get this is it going to be May 4th I need that you know they may say well I like this agile process I, I'm all of all for agility and this and that but they're still going to want dates and they're going to want to see something at some point so uh, that stage getting process just helps ensure that you're going to, to meet a deadline because business is about deadlines. I don't think the deadlines are going to go away, uh, to some extent. And so it helps keep these, uh, helps keep you honest.
0: Helps yeah. Keep your development
1: teams honest.
0: Although, although to be fair, that is shifting a little bit, right? I mean, if you take Apple, for example, you know, they, it sort of moved away from saying, you know, we'll, we'll deliver you the next iPhone on this date. You know, they are, uh, they. Uh, right that they may indicate a quarter or a year, but isn't there some movement away from deadlines? Sure. The embedded context, right?
1: Yeah. I think it's all about uh, working with your clients. And like I mentioned earlier, you know, your clients are your partners, your clients uh, collaborate, you collaborate with them and they're more like partners as opposed to clients. And so uh, typically you can through this collaboration process, negotiate with them. Okay. We've, You know, we're going to show you something around this time frame, uh, and uh, or if if timelines need to change or shift, it's typically not as big of a problem as it may be because you don't have that, you know, this contract drop dead date or whatever where we got to have it by then. So yeah, there's certainly flexibility, and it's all about working with your customers to to develop that collaborative uh, mindset and approach to being able to have that flexibility.
0: Yeah, yeah, but it sounds to me like there's a bit a big. Big finding here is that it's okay to have different cadences. Like not everybody has to be on a weekly screen. And not everybody has to follow the sort of the that's right. Yeah, you know, let's say the scrum doctrine. Like right? we, we flex across teams and we don't make people wrong for not following what might be applicable in one area to another.
1: Sure, absolutely. And as long as it's grounded in research, you know, do you have your research and the case studies to back up these different approaches or techniques? And that's very, very important because. Many companies are trying to do the same thing, but they're doing it by feel or by intuition or by uh, motivated by what uh, maybe the development teams or project managers want to do. They may say, well, we, we want to adopt this attribute, but we don't want to do this, or we don't want to do daily standard. We don't, you know, if you go go that route, you're, you're, you're headed towards failure, or uh, the best case scenario is you're not going to achieve the results you really want. Uh, the point is, is that it's flexible. You can make changes uh, agile is not written in stone. It's more like, uh, like, uh, that movie Pirates of the Caribbean, when they talk about the pirate code, it's more like a, a set of guidelines, you know, instead of rules. Right. But you have it, the flexibility has to be grounded in research and grounded in case studies to, so that you know that what you're doing is going to work at least with some level of uh
0: assurance. Right. 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 Okay. So we talked about we talked uh, before we came on the call about this other s- central idea in the book uh, of the agile vortex or agile vorticity. <laughs> so, sure. So should we, should we should we dive in and dive in and have a go at applying uh, fluid uh, dynamics to uh, this this context. Yeah, talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure, absolutely. So uh you know one of the biggest problems with agile, one of the biggest challenges in the agile community Is answering the question of how agile are you? How do we measure agility? That's a big question when you think about it. We're we're undertaking all these agile transformation efforts, and in the end, once we're done, well, how do we know we've really achieved what we expect? And if we need to improve, how do we know what needs to be improved and how to get there? And how much agility needs to be achieved to to, to become optimally agile. And so, answering that question has been a big issue in this industry for a long time. And so, in my research, in addition to doing a qualitative set of qualitative research against case studies, uh, an interpretive case study to uh, interpretive qualitative research against these case studies to figure out this hybrid agile um, implementation and this super agile adaptation, I also realized that there was a central phenomenon going on here that I wanted to try and. Dive into, which was uh, the gravity that was pulling everything else. And, and so I applied a ground, a, a, what would they, what they call in academic world, a, a grounded theory analysis. is a method of qualitative analysis to help you figure out, to to look at a case study and figure out well what is the central phenomenon going on here, and what's driving everything, and what is this really telling us, right? And so I applied grounded theory. Uh, analysis and came up with the idea of agile vorticity that's what came out of that analysis and agile vorticity essentially answers the question for how, how agile you are uh, provides a measurement for it and the methodology to determine it uh, and that's very important uh, and somewhat groundbreaking i like to think uh, and so i'm always excited to talk about it and explain what it is and uh, because i think it's very important uh, it's very important to uh, Uh, maintaining your competitiveness in the industry. It's very important to being able to measure, you know, these agile transformation efforts and determine how successful or unsuccessful they were. And so that's critical, I think, to be able to establish that kind of
0: metric. Okay. So let's break this down. So a vortex is like a whirlpool. Yeah? Right. So what's, so what's happened? So, so in your metaphor, then what's, What's pulling, you know, what, what are the forces at play that's causing this whirlpool? Should we start there? Sure.
1: It's, uh, it's basically uh, innovation and hyper-accelerated markets that's causing this whirlpool. Um, and, and I call it a whirlpool because uh, it's essentially a thought experiment. You know, when Einstein described relativity, he used, what, the elevator, right? So thought experiments are, are a very good way of describing uh, and, and illustrating theories, So I use the whirlpool in this case. And and what's driving this whirlpool is hyper accelerated markets. The the rate of change that we're experiencing today in the markets and technology markets is so much faster than it was 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Everything is moving at at an ever accelerated pace. And it's more instead of just being a fast moving river, it's more like a whirlpool uh, or a tornado type effect, if you will. And so at the center of that is market pressure. That's, that's, that's the thing that's pulling, uh, pulling uh, technology companies into trying to develop these innovative products is this market pressure, this desire for these new, this new technology or these new products. Uh, and that's the center of your whirlpool. And uh, on the outer rings of the whirlpool, where things move just a little bit slower, you have your product management teams within your organization who are trying to figure out okay, what's what type of product does the market want? And what is the market timing for this product? And what's it going to look like? That's called product genesis. And in the book, I go into detail about what product genesis is. But it starts with your product management teams who are trying to figure out and develop the vision for this new product that they think the market wants. It's being you know, pulled by this internal pressure, this, this centralized, uh, 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 this gravity, if you will, in, inside the whirlpool. And then on the uh, uh, outer rings is your, or the outer rings of the Whirlpool are your development teams, your development and testing teams, your your software teams, your firmware teams, and your hardware teams. And again, I'm using the embedded systems context because I think it's so relevant today. And they move at ever successive slower rates, right? The hardware teams are on the outer ring of the Whirlpool because they move the slowest then and firmware and then software. And so that's called your organizational agility or your process agility, the agility of your organization and the, uh, the, your, 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 uh, the product Genesis and your product management team and the market pressure on the inner side of the whirlpool is your market agility. And so the idea is, is that your market agility is moving at one speed and your process agility is moving at another speed. Right, the market and typically the market is moving a little faster. What does that What does that mean with relation to vorticity? Well, vorticity is a fluid dynamics concept. So, if you depict, if you picture a river, a flow of water, for example, uh, the uh, water in the center of the river is moving faster than water closer to the bank because it's slowed down by friction. And so, if you take a vorticity meter, which is like a little buoy with a flag on it and stick it in between those two flows of water, it's going to spin very fast because the inner flow of water is moving much faster than the water closer to the bank. That's high vorticity. If the flows of water are moving at the same speed, that buoy is not going to move at all. You're going to have zero vorticity. And so when you look at the whirlpool, you have your process agility, which is the agility of your organization, your hardware, firmware, and software teams on the outer rings of that whirlpool And then you have your market agility, which is uh, the market pressure and uh, the feature set that your product management organization has put together as the genesis of the product moving at a faster speed. You stick that buoy in between those two flows of water, you're going to have high vorticity because the uh, market agility is moving much faster than the process agility. And so what that means is, okay, you need to become more agile from a process agility perspective to keep up with the market agility. You have high vorticity. The flows of water are moving at very different speeds and that little vorticity uh, buoy is moving very, very fast. If you can obtain enough agility from a process agility perspective and get your development teams moving at the same rate as your market agility, the flows of water are moving at close to the same pace and you're going to have zero vorticity between the two. And so that's how, that's how agile vorticity is defined.
0: I see. Um, so you want, to, you, you want to reduce as much as possible how fast that boy is spinning, right? The, that's the, right. The differential in flow of the different, at the different uh, rings.
1: Right. Yeah. Your, your market agility, uh, which is determined by product genesis and the market pressure, uh, oftentimes it's moving at a much faster rate. And so you want to try and achieve the same rate with your process agility, which is your development and testing teams. Mm. And inside the book, I basically break down the process of market agility into its smallest components. Uh, and I go into detail about that. Uh, there's a whole, there's a framework diagram uh, in there, which breaks them down into different pieces. Uh, and also a few more illustrations, which helps understand how this uh, zero vorticity is achieved? Uh, there's there's different ways and techniques of doing
0: that, but uh, um, right. But but isn't isn't it to some extent a choice as to how close you want to to be to the speed oh, of the sure. market? Right? Oh sure, absolutely. Because it, if you want to be you know a, an innovator in your market and on the cussing edge, and part, then you want to you want you want to chase that and be as as, as fast as the market as you can you right. may strategically decide to be let's say uh you know a later adopter um rather than being first right you may sure you may, you may want make to make a see conscious choice to go slightly slower than the fastest in your market
1: right and you may you may want to see where the where the market goes for a while yeah. before you decide to jump in right that's a very valid point and and the, the idea of vorticity allows you to sort of help figure that out well Okay. I want to make sure that I'm, I'm not really concerned about being the most agile, but I want to make sure I don't fall too far behind. So I want to make sure I have a happy medium there where I, you know, maybe I'm just behind the curve so that I can, you know, see where these other players are going and let them experience more of the, uh, the growing pain, so to speak. And, uh, but I don't want to fall too far behind. So agile vorticity can help you sort of figure out that happy medium as well.
0: Yeah. I don't know if you're aware of the work of Simon Wardley. Are you? I don't think so. No, he's a, a UK um, complexity thinker, you might say, but he's got this idea of a well, Wardley map, which maps um, where you're playing across the sort of ecosystem, from a pioneer at one end to um, uh, I think it's a, it's a pioneer, settler, town planner, city planner, but um, to to uh, you know somebody at the other end of the infrastructure, or at the other end of the ecosystem, should I say, who's Who's much more interested in scaled commodity um, provision uh, as opposed to cutting edge uh, pioneer and i I think in that sure. context it'd be interesting to overlay this idea of autisticy versus um his his map like, yeah I think as I hear you speak yeah
1: yeah, absolutely that does sound very interesting yeah there yeah. there would be an overlay I would think
0: mm. yeah
1: i okay. could I could see that
0: um yeah that, that makes sense and also and, and if you bring the vortex metaphor back into play could you also not say that it's um it would be appropriate maybe that some parts of your organization would spin quicker so some level of sort of vorticity across the layers of your organization may, may, may also be okay
1: right, right? Yeah, absolutely i mean oftentimes uh your software teams are going to move faster than the hardware teams. Maybe not always, but
0: oftentimes that's the case. And yes, that's very true. Yes. Yeah. So it wouldn't be like you'd always want it to be like a river where the flu flows consistent all the way across. You know, you might be okay that it looks a bit more like a whirlpool than faster right. in some places, like, as you say, the product genesis and slower at the, let's say, hardware development. Yeah.
1: Right. Interesting. No,
0: that's such a rich metaphor, though, and uh it seems so much more sort of sophisticated than the, you know are you regularly engaging in this these twenty practices and yes, no, and outspits a a you know, maturity metric yeah yeah this sure seems like a richer way of looking at it
1: absolutely I like to think so i i and I'm pretty excited about it because I think there's so much value that it adds uh in many ways uh because it's uh it's not just an academic theory, even though it's derived from scientific research, which most method- agile methodologies are not, but it's, uh, it's broken down into its, all of its subcomponents, which are easily ap- applicable to industry, easily applicable to practitioners.
0: And you're coming at it, and what I like about it is you're coming at it from the question of, you know, am I, am I out competing the market or am I at least as fast as the market around me, right? Um, Right. That's the Gary Hamill quote, isn't it? Change as fast as change itself or, you know, so, right. Yeah. Am I, am I changing fast enough as opposed to, am I effectively adopting XYZ practices? Right. Something like that, right?
1: Absolutely. That's the, that's the measure of agility. And again, that's another problem that people get stuck on is they're focused on, well, I'm defining my level of agility as, you know, how well am I adopting these practices? Uh, and that's, it's fine to look at that, but that's not really what you should be looking at. You should be focusing on results. How agile is it making you in the marketplace? That's the, that's what you really want to look at. And that's where, you know, the real value add is. And so you yeah. know, people often become too myopic and focus on the mechanics of agility as opposed to what it's really supposed to do for them.
0: Yeah. And you took a agile as product engine. I like that, I like that phrase. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and then finally, so, is there anything more I mean I know you concluded in the end of the book about you know where you see agile going you know any any sort of closing remarks on, on the future of agility as a movement
1: yeah I think that uh, I think uh, uh, you know uh, data science is going to continue to drive more advanced tooling to help us make decisions especially with artificial intelligence I think that's going to be uh, an impact on you know, how we prioritize requirements and how we manager projects. I think that's very important. I think Agile is becoming integral to strategic planning. You know, Agile isn't just a development process, it's a whole new way of doing business. And and more company leadership is, are, are realizing that Agile it needs to be included as part of their strategic planning and not just oh well, that's just a development process those coders and testers worry about. We don't need to worry about that. But no, they actually do. It, it changes the whole way you do business. It needs to be included in your, uh, in your strategic planning because of what I talked about at the beginning about the vision. You know, you've got to establish what that vision is and make sure the change you're acquiring uh, uh, adheres to that vision. It's going to take you where you want to go. Also, I think that, uh, agile organizations require agile leaders. So uh, it's not just your development people and testers that need to be agile. Your executive team and your managers need to become more agile as well and uh, new markets need to be continually sought out. I've seen in some of my case studies where uh, they became number one in one market, but they never changed. They never looked for new markets, and when that market dried up, they had, they were, they were starting to lose agility. They started to, you know, lose money, and because they were failing to seek out new markets, okay, we might achieve, have achieved what we want to in this one market, but what about the uh, what about these other markets that were that were related to uh, what other things can we do you have to constantly seek out new markets and can't just focus on the same market forever that's one mistake I've seen uh, even with some case studies who achieved uh, really great initial success and uh, I also believe that uh, uh, agile is going to continue to evolve uh, as I've shown as I talked about at the beginning how the fourth ends of the manifesto sort of you know, evolved uh, as how they're applied uh, versus, you know, what the actual text says that was written 20 years ago. I think it's going to continue to change. Uh, And I think we're going to see that. I I believe that uh, this hybrid agile implementation is going to become more common and perhaps become uh, the typical uh, as opposed to the atypical agile implementation method. I think you're going to see that
0: more and more. Yeah. Or at least accepted as the typical. I mean, to say that right. it, it is the typical, right? It's the de facto. Right. We say, we say that now 5% of pure, purest implementation. So it's the, this is what I'm taking, you know, one of the things I'm taking out of this conversation is, you know, let's embrace it, accept it. This is the de facto. Right. And now let's ask ourselves, well, how do we optimize that? Why is it the de facto? Right. Which I think you, you know, you've answered to some extent in this book, right? It's, sure, but well, it's because it people are really successful with it. Yes, not in every context, but in potentially the majority of contexts right yeah well, David, thank you so much well, thank I, you. I've enjoyed it good I feel like we've done i hope we've done the book Justice, and I hope that's whetted people's appetite uh to dive in i'll bring the I'll bring the uh the book up on screen here for those who are watching um, yeah. Meta Agility, Managing Agile Development for Competitive Advantage. We'll put a link to the book in the description of the show. Anywhere else you would point people?
1: Uh, Well, they can take a look at uh, metagility.technology, which is where we're posting our course offerings. Uh, I do teach courses regularly uh, all over the world. But uh, right now I'm doing in the U.S., but uh, I've I've taught courses in, in Europe as well and other places. So, you can check there for our latest schedule. And uh, of course, right now, face to face courses have been pushed back. I think uh, we were going to start, supposed to have started it already, but they've been pushed back to August because of uh, uh, obviously the pandemic situation. But I'm hoping to uh, keep the courses scheduled for the fall. So, you can take a look at that. Also, AgileWorks, uh, our website, agile, dot wrxcom That's our company website. There's a lot of information out there. You can take a look at and find out more about us, uh, and of course, please check out the book too. the book, the book is available everywhere books are sold, uh, available electronically as well as a textbook.
0: So yeah, good. All right, thanks once again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I enjoy the the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.